ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark. The book of Mark. I'm going to try to stand most of the day. I had back, I had shots in my back Wednesday, and they're the best shots I've had. There were six of them. They were a booger. <laughs> but, man, I've had energy. I've just I've felt so much better. So I hope this, this continues. So hopefully you won't have a preacher who's always sitting down. And I don't, always, I don't like sitting down um, unless I have to kind of thing. So Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to be. Now I want to take kind of a quick recap of where we've been. Last week it was so exciting, wasn't it? Jesus finally comes. He comes into the holy city. He comes and they're, they're hailing him as the son of David, right? And this is a major thing. And we're seeing these prophecies. They're just popping out all over the place. And they're being fulfilled. As, as Jesus comes, and he's coming like a king. Remember that. He's coming like a king. And he is, for the first time, he is publicly showing himself as to his identity, as to what his ministry is about. And folks, it could not have happened at a bigger time. This is the week of unleavened bread and Passover. So normally, archaeologists tell us, that at the time of Christ, there were about 50,000 people who lived in Jerusalem. During these times, during these times, then what we see is 150,000 people came and visited in Jerusalem. So imagine, there's 50,000 people already crammed into this city, and now there's going to be another 150,000 people, and they're going to come cramming into the city as well. Folks, this place is electric. But then we, Jesus comes in as this triumphal king, and what happens? So anticlimactic. It's like you're watching this, and it's like, here comes Jesus. He's the king. And you're just hearing these, you know, these prophecies, bah, 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 with everything he's doing. And then he comes to the temple. He looks around. He knows it's late, and he leaves. He goes back two miles to Bethany, where he and the disciples are staying until today. This is day two in Jerusalem. And so day two, Jesus is no longer going to resemble a king. He takes off this kingly symbolism, and he puts on that of a prophet of God. Oh, this is, this is such big things that are going to happen here. Now, once again, Mark shows us this chiastic form that we, we often talk about, and it's the way they wrote to kind of keep us focused on what's happening. And in this chiastic form, there is the cursing of a fig tree, there's going to be the judgment on the temple, and then it's going to come back to this fig tree. And, and this has caused a lot of problems for people because they did not read it as, as these three things are connected, they read them as individual stories. And it's like Jesus comes on the scene and, and there's this, he curses this fig tree. And it's like, you know, this doesn't, just doesn't make sense. In fact, there have been those, especially after the, uh, the Enlightenment, the post-Enlightenment time between the 1700s and the 1900s even, that really struggled with what Jesus does here, that we're going to see in the very beginning. Um, one guy, Bertrand Russell, he is a... He was a, um, a non-believer in every way, but he saw what Jesus does here, and he refers to it as vindictive fury. 
that Jesus has on this tree. Another guy who is a believer, T.W. Manson, back in his day, he read it and he said, this is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of the ill-tempered. And, and it is one of those things that when we read it, it's like, this just doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make sense as to who Jesus is and everything else. However, the first time, um, the first commentary that we have on the Gospel of Mark, it comes all the way back to the 5th century. And it's by Victor of Antioch. And in there, he connects the cursing of the fig tree with what happens at the temple. And that's the way we're going to read it, because that's the way it's intended to be read. When we read it this way, it's just going to open up things that you just you may not have ever thought about before. It's just going to be very powerful. So let's get started. Let's get started with the first part of this chiastic form of the cursing of the fig tree. Somebody read for us verses 11 through 12. Okay, that's good. That's good. All right, so we read this first part. What's your thoughts about this fig tree so far and Jesus approaching it? What's your honest thoughts? Do what? It's not doing its duty. How else are you reading it? Okay, she brings up a good point. It's not the season for the figs. Are any of you reading? Oh, go ahead, Jerry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Is this, is this kind of out? I mean, so Jesus is day two. He's coming back to the temple. It's the morning time. He's hungry. And he sees this tree. Jerry drew me a pretty big tree. Kind of looks like it. He said it looks better than my oak tree that I drew earlier. Uh, but he sees this fig tree. It's got leaves. And he thinks there's something on it. He goes and there's nothing on it. It gives the appearance that it would produce fruit, but it had no fruit. And so he just turns and he curses the, the fig tree. Now, as I said, the biggest part of this, especially in Mark, is the fact that he says the figs are out of season. And that is true. Because fig trees... Uh, and, and by the way, I, I've struggled with this, and then in my research I found some things out, and I'm like, oh, okay, well this makes a little more sense. So fig trees, their harvest time is, is between the mid-August to mid-October in that place. And so right after the harvest of these ripe figs, then they, these buds come up on them, but they don't really grow or develop in any way until the spring. So in March and April, they, they grow into these, these green little things here, and they're called pagum in the Hebrew. And actually, the Song of Solomon uses this Hebrew word, and he referred to it as unripe figs. Uh, so while it's not the season, poor people and people who were hungry could eat these. These were edible. Um, but the fact that they didn't have any means what for the summer? There's not going to be any figs anyway, right? So Jesus, he sees all of this. And the point is that the tree showed life, that there would be fruit. He comes, he inspects it, there is no fruit. What did Jesus do last week? What do we say? The anticlimactic part is Jesus comes to the temple and what does he do? He inspects it. He walks in, he looks around, and it, like the tree is something that looks as if something that should bear fruit. But on closer inspection, 
there's no fruit. You see this. All right, so let's now just, let's just move into this. Because Jesus is now going to tell us the results of what he saw the evening before on day one. So somebody read for us verses 15 through 19. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the temple for a moment. I mean, we hear about, you know, those of us who we've read our Bibles, we've gone to Bible classes over the years, we, we're familiar, kind of familiar with temple, tabernacle, this kind of thing. And we often think in terms of like a single building. But when we talk about Herod's temple, Herod's temple was this huge complex, okay? It wasn't just made up of one building. And actually the one that was standing there at the time of Christ is the second temple. It's the one that was built after captivity, Zerubbabel. You can read about that in the Old Testament scriptures. But around 20 BC, they began to renovate. Herod began to renovate this for the Jews. And, and, and as you see, there were this, it's, it's this major, huge complex. The people were very proud of this. In fact, it's not even finished being built even at this particular time. So there is this court of the Gentiles that you see here. It's this huge area that we find here. And then here is where the courtyard of women was located. And that would be Israelite women. And then a next courtyard or area is the court of Israel, which was only Jewish circumcised males. They, only they could come to this area. And then just right inside of it, we find the court of the priests and the temple and all of that kind of thing. And, and, I, and I make all of this clear because I'm trying to give you an idea where all this is taking place. This is the court of the Gentiles. Just to give you an idea, this is the size of a football field here, and this is the size of the temple complex. It makes up about 32 acres. It's about 500 yards one way, another 300 and something the other way. So this is a very huge place. And so we look at this and say, well, that's great. You know what? Gentiles had a place to come and to worship God. Although we're going to find out that's not really how the Jews um, saw it. In fact, what they saw is that this whole thing is a boundary. The court of the Gentiles is a boundary to the temple itself. And years later, even after what Jesus is going to do here, there's still conflict going on. Years later with the Apostle Paul, if you remember the story in Acts chapter 21, and you know, oh, he, they're being accused of bringing this Greek in there, and, and the city's all stirred up. I mean, it is just a mess because they think they have, that Paul has brought a non-Jew into an area that belonged only to Israel. So what I want you to see is this is how they saw that. They had, they had warning signs. For Gentiles that they were not to go further than the court of the Gentiles I mean this is this is how they saw it so Jesus comes to the temple and he sees all of this and what is Jesus's reaction yeah let's just say it. he's ticked off he is angry and what does he do yeah he does what angry people do he's turning over tables He's, he's, he's getting those who are selling and buying. He's, just, he's, he's driving them all out um, because this is a serious thing. Now, let me say this. There were vendors, and these vendors were located in the court of the Gentiles. This is where the problem comes. 
It was in the court of the Gentiles. And so um, these vendors were necessary. Why was it necessary to have vendors that would sell animals for sacrifice? Why do you think that would be important at this particular time? Yeah, people come from far away. What are those animals, what is one of the requirements of the animals to be sacrificed? Perfect, that'd be without blemish. So what happens if something happens to the animal? It falls, it breaks its leg on the way in. I mean, there's a real need for it. And the money changers, what was the purpose of the money changers? Yeah, take money, but what was it for? The temple tax. The temple tax. It was a half shekel. But what happens if you're coming from all these other places outside of Israel, what kind of coinage do you have? You don't have the half shekel. And so it's just like if you go to another country, the first thing you do in the airport is you go up there and you exchange American money for their money. Uh, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But what I want you to see is that they made sure that these things were there, um, that it was important. It was important. But that was not the problem. The issue is whether the court of Gentiles is where all of this, these vending vendors and, and money changers and everything else as to where that needs to be. And, and the reason is because the temple area, and that includes the, gent, the court of the Gentiles, that was not its purpose. So the temple has suddenly become a boundary. It ha, it's being used for unintended purposes um, in what was happening um, in all of this. As well, so the sacrificial animals—they had been sold um, years previous to this on the Mount of Olives. Archaeologists tell us about these things; that, that that's was where it was. But in recent years, they allowed these vendors to come to the temple complex, and that is the problem that we find here. Jesus's protest is not the trade itself, and there were some problems with it. But the protest that Jesus is showing here is the fact of it being in the wrong place. It's the wrong place. And that's not what the temple was intended to be. Okay? Intended. Intended. Anybody catch that? Bunch of language Nazis. All right, let's see. <laughs> Not that half y'all can read it anyway. All right, unintended purposes. Is that right? Did I get that? Okay, I feel better now. I feel better. All right, so, so now we're going to zoom in on this text, what we just read, and we're going to find out where Jesus is coming from, okay? Because the first thing he says there is he asks these He's asking these chief priests and these scribes a question. And he says, it is not, is it, it should be, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now notice, who is he speaking to? The scholars. And he's saying, have you not read your Bibles? That's really what he's saying there. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Anybody have a footnote on this, this particular verse here? 
Ah, yes, Isaiah 56 and verse 7. This is where it comes from. Now, what have we said when we find these hyperlinks? It sets up the whole story. He's trying, he's not just, okay, well, you know, I'm just speaking where the Bible speaks. Uh, he's, he's, he's speaking and he's, he's telling something at the same time. Okay? So go to Isaiah 56. We're going to go there in just a minute. Um, so Isaiah 56. God is advising Israel on, on how they are to behave while they await the coming salvation. Okay, this is what Isaiah 56 is about. And uh, chap the chapters leading up to the one that Jesus quotes, verse chapters 40 through 55, it just paints this magnificent picture uh, of what Yahweh's salvation is going to look like. The, El the exiles, they have returned from Babylon, but they have not experienced the full promises yet. And so beginning in Isaiah 56, and where Jesus quotes, he begins to tell of this expanded version of salvation. And it's the coming of the Messiah King, and he is coming for all nations. Notice what it, what it says up there. So, he comes here, and he quotes from a passage where they have made boundaries Jesus quotes to them from a prophecy that says that the house of God and its salvation is going to come to all nations. All right? In fact, let's go to Isaiah 56. I think I mentioned that. And listen to the list that it includes. Um, man, this is such good stuff. Yes, we're gonna, you hold that thought. I'm going to come back to you on that. So Isaiah 56, verse 3, he says, Let not the foreigner, okay, think about who these people are. These are people outside, who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch, this is an outcast, say, Behold, I am a dry tree, for thus says the Lord. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, those who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. And by the way, the Ethiopian unit becomes a, just a major part of this prophecy here. Verse 5, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name and they shall not be cut off. Think about who he's talking about here. And the foreigners will join themselves to the Lord to minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, this is this temple, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. See that house of prayer? Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord said, who gathers the outcast of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those who are already gathered. So Jesus comes to the temple, and he sees the very opposite of what Isaiah has says. They have built all of these, these boundary walls, right? And, and so these people are being excluded. And there's a reason why we find these boundaries. And I say this often. 
And I'll say it again and again. This is why it's important to understand what happened in the intertestament period. Because it's like, okay, well, here are these prophecies. What happened between the time of this prophecy and the time that we're here? How did this happen? It's the intertestament period. And that's between the first and second century. There was this, uh, for, this for what we're talking about here, there was this... Um, um, Uh, yeah, I know. I'm, I've lost my thought. So, first and second century, there was a book that was written. It's the it's part of the apocryphal. Now, the apocryphal is not a part of the canon of scripture, and but it's history. It tells us where their minds were. It tells us what happens. That's why it's important because all of a sudden you come to the New Testament and we see things we don't see in the Old Testament at all. Synagogues, Pharisees, Sadducees. It's like where did all those people come from? Where did all this thought process come? It came from these times. So there was this thing called the Psalms of Solomon, not to be confused with the Song of Solomon. Psalms of Solomon, and they believed that when the Messiah would come, he is going to come to the temple, and he is going to cleanse it of Gentiles, of foreigners, and sinners. So, when, so those who were building Herod's temple, they took that very seriously. And so they built these boundaries at Herod's temple. So God's house was to be a witness to the nations, but Jesus shows up, and not only is it not being a witness or a light to the nations, but he finds that the Gentiles are limited in their approach to God. And not only have they been limited in their approach to God, but the place that they were given, they have put these vendors. It would have been better for Gentiles to go outside of the temple complex and find a place where it would be peace and quiet. This, can you imagine the noise, the commotion, the animals, the, you know, the swapping? and every, I mean, it would just, this has not become a place of prayer. The temple is a sacred place. And that was its intended to be a place of prayer. What Jesus is doing is he's showing this judgment that is coming on the temple. This is the prophetic part. But what we find with prophecy is that when we, when we read like Isaiah and all of these, that when there's judgment, there's always a message of hope. So Jesus is bringing both of these. He's, he's trying to bring us back as to what all of this is um, really supposed to be about. Now, there's another part of the phrase, and, and you mentioned it. Where did it come from, what Jesus said? Yeah, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Jesus again, he says, you have made this into a den of thieves, or a den of robbers. Okay, let me put that up here, because that's why the judgment was coming. The temple was a den of robbers. All right. What is a robber's den? What do you think a robber's den was used for? Yeah, hideout, plot plan. It's a place you felt safe, right? Now, I used to think, and, and this is one of those things where you hear something over and over and over through the years 
and you just automatically assume that that's, you just, you don't even think anymore, you just assume this is what's going on. That the reason Jesus gets so upset is because the money changers were, were charging extra, and that those with the animals, they were also charging extra, they were exploiting the people. And let me say this, they were. And, and the high priests, their families, they were wealthy. And the reason they were wealthy is because they were corrupt. But if we're going to follow what Jesus says and we follow the prophecies that Jesus is giving us hyperlinks to, then we have to see it really for, for what it's intended to be. And that is, it was for them, the temple had become a place of safety. They felt, they felt okay here. They felt like everything was good as long as they made their sacrifices and they did it at the prescribed time and at the prescribed places and everything else. But if you read Jeremiah, what was happening is the people at that time, they were going outside of the city and they were offering up sacrifices to Molech, child sacrifices. And then they would come back in to the temple and they would offer up sacrifices to Yahweh. And, and what was happening is they were exploiting um, or oppressing, really, people who were foreigners and fatherless and widows. So here, this Jeremiah is known as the temple sermon. Isn't that amazing? The two places that Jesus refers to is, is coming about something about the temple. And this in Jeremiah is about the temple. And the reason it's called the, Jeremiah's temple sermon is because he delivers it at the gate of the house. And he's trying to tell them, he warns Judah not to trust in their deceptive words. Here's their deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, when you see three, there's a great place of emphasis. In other words, this is what's so important to us. This is the place of the Lord, the place of the Lord, the place of the Lord. And they believe that Yahweh's presence guaranteed that Jerusalem was good, that they're good. Nothing's going to happen to them. And they're called to change their ways. They had oppressed the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow. They had shed the innocent blood. And then they came back to the temple of Yahweh to offer up their sacrifices. And they had turned it into a den of robbers. But Jeremiah declares that they will be destroyed. They will be destroyed. They will be taken into exile. He quotes this because judgment is coming on the temple. It's coming on the temple. And it's coming because they have turned it into boundaries. It's not a light to the nations anymore. It is a place that it's no longer for its intended purpose, a place of worship and prayer for God. They have turned it into this uh, for people to feel like they're safe especially the leaders, this is mainly what, this is what he's talking about in the text, is these leaders, they felt like they were fine because, hey, they offered up these sacrifices and everything else, and that was a problem. And so, so Mark makes sure that we know the chief priests and the scribes get it. How do we know they got it? What does it say there? Fearful? They're fearful of the crowds? Yes? What else? Something else bigger. They are, they are looking for an opportunity. 
to destroy Jesus. Uh, they get it. They saw themselves as the ones who are licensed by heaven to rule over God's temple. And so in the evening, Jesus does what? He goes back to Bethany. It's the end of day two. So where we're going to begin now is the beginning of day three, when he comes back to Jerusalem again. Somebody read for us verses 20 through 25. Okay, so Jesus is coming back, and as they're walking back, all of a sudden they see the fig tree from the day before. What's happened to it? It's withered. It's withered. Nothing withers that fast. Should have had Jerry draw me a tree with just branches on it. Um, but this thing has, it's withered away. It's withered away fast. And, and the terminology that's used here with the fig tree, it withered away from its roots, it's the exact same phraseology that Mark used in the parable of the sower and the one that landed on the hard ground. Who are we dealing with here? Hard people, hard-hearted people. And he says that it was scorched and it was withered away. Listen, Jesus has not come to cleanse the temple. That's a lot of times, that's what we refer to this as what's happening here. Jesus is coming and cleansing the temple. He's not coming to cleanse the temple. He is coming to bring it to its end. He's coming to prophesy that it's coming to an end. In fact, it's not going to be long. We're going to read this. Jesus says to them, he's talking just to his disciples at this point, and he says, do you see the great buildings? They were, they were enamored by the whole Herod complex, okay, the temple complex. He says, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And it's like, man, this is so gloom and doom. But then we're going to find out that there will be another temple that rises out of its ashes after three days. And it's a temple that's not made with hands. And so all of this stuff is, is just kind of coming together. Um, and the temple that God is, is coming to build, um, it's, it's for all nations. It's a, it's a place of prayer. It is uh, a place where there will not be the sacrificial animals, this slaughter of animals continually every day. We don't need those animal vendors anymore because Jesus, he becomes the sacrificial lamb. And, and they, they no longer, um, they, they come and, and, and Jesus comes and he makes atonement for us. And we're going to later on see that Jesus is going to bring us access into the holy of holies into the very presence of God. He's moving us Gentiles further than the court of the women, further than the court of Israel. And he's bringing all of us into a place that was not, had not been given access. And all those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb, they too will come. And they will come into this access. Now Mark concludes with a series of sayings. And these sayings have to do with faith and prayer and forgiveness. And it's the forgiveness of others. It is the essence of the new temple. That's what it's to be about. 
And something I want to notice here is, is Jesus illustrates this power of prayer and faith in what is known as a Hebraic hyperbole. Um, and, and he uses here, he says, he speaks of this mountain. And notice, is it, it's a specific mountain, isn't it? You will say to this mountain. What mountain is he talking about? Do what? Mount of Olives. All right. Uh, there's a lot of debate over this. Uh, one group of scholars, they believe it has to do with the fortress at Herodian, which where literally Herod moved a mountain in order to make this rounded fortress, which is important for attacks and so forth. Um, others, and this is what I believe, not because I'm a scholar, but I believe this makes the most sense, as he's talking about the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount. He is not in Jerusalem yet. He can see across the valley. That is the mountain he would have seen. And he's been talking about the Temple. And what he's asking them to do is to have a faith, a faith that is outrageous, a faith that is so crazy it is actually very offensive when you talk about the temple of God being destroyed and cast into the sea. And he's saying, if you will believe, if you will believe, because what he's asking them to believe is that this, kind, this place will no longer be there. And he's come to bring something that is of greater and more, something that's, that's more wonderful than what we see. And it, and it will not be the focal point, uh, or it will, this other temple will not be the focal point of God's presence among his people. God will not be confined. Jesus, not the temple, is the object of our faith. And they had turned the temple into its object of faith. Jesus says, I've come to change that. Now, there's one of these interesting things we find in Ezekiel. Ezekiel's given this amazing vision, and this is what the vision pretty much would look like if we were to put a sketch artist of it, and it's a third temple, and, and there's a lot of things here that's very confusing. I do not claim in any way to understand everything about this. It would not make sense to us that there's going to be another temple that's going to come, and it's going to have an altar where all of a sudden we're going to be offering up animals of sacrifice and things. I think this is highly symbolic, and I think uh, and the language that they would have used in the day is, is signifying the one who's coming, Jesus, that he becomes the altar, the sacrifice. He, he is the one. It's, it's kind of like for us, uh, the bread and the cup, it symbolizes the death of Jesus. I believe that's what this would symbolize. And then it refers to this, 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 uh, this river that comes flowing out of the throne of God, and it moves eastward. And it just gets bigger and bigger. And, and this river, all of a sudden, it takes the wilderness, which is where it would have been located. The wilderness is all of a sudden, it's flourishing. Where it was, was dead and dry, it's now all of a sudden, there's animals and there's, there's all of this wonderful vegetation and everything else. And Jesus is, he is the living waters. And he's come, and he's come to move beyond the boundaries of the temple. And it is to go out to all the nations. And this living water is, is to us. It's come to us. And he's taken us in our, our times of wilderness and our barrenness and, and times where we had no hope at all, and he brings us into his family. 
He brings us the extension of what he does with Israel, and he renews Israel, but more importantly for us is that it now has extended to all the nations, and boundaries have been taken down. And now we come to God, and as we drip in the blood of Jesus, we have access to his very presence. The temple of Jesus' day had not done that. It had been right the opposite. It had reached a point of no return. It's going to come down. It is going to come down. Within 40 years, it will be torn down. And all that's going to remain, which is something that had already begun, is the temple of God, the true temple of God, and, and, uh, and everything. So that makes sense somewhat. No, uh, maybe Bible, I mean, maybe worship will help out a little more. Yes. Yes. Whoo, you're getting into my sermon now. No, 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 that's okay. No, look, that's, that's what it's meant to do. It's meant to, it's meant for us to ask that question. Yeah, Absolutely. That's, he, he's, he's a prophet. He comes as a prophet of Israel. You see this. And you're going to see it even more, I think, in worship um, as how Jesus has come and how he approaches this thing. He is a prophet as he has, has shown up. All right, let's bow for a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you so much for allowing us to be here. We're so grateful for your goodness and your kindness. And Father, we thank you that you have opened up the way for, for those of us um, in our state of being lost, in the state of, of being a part of the nations who were wicked and evil at one time, and now you've brought us all in, and you want to love us and save us, and you had a plan. And Father, we're so grateful that it, it has happened. We're so grateful that your son has come, and that he began that, that gathering up of all people and of all situations and issues and and father just continue to love us and care for us the way you do father we just pray for this time as we get ready to come as your people and we worship you together and we pray for our hearts and that they will be be pure and holy as we approach your very throne in jesus name we pray amen all right good to see everybody